0: Emily
1: hey Greg
0: I am speaking to you through my officially licensed NHL face mask for COVID-19 <clears throat> oh, let me take this off uh yeah um I this is my official NHL face mask that I'm wearing I got one before July
1: wow it's weird we're FaceTiming it just looks like your hand is over your face which doesn't go with CDC recommendations but I like the bit let's keep going <sighs>
0: Jesus, you're right. COVID-19 ruins comedy, too. Um, The NHL has decided it's going to sell licensed cloth face coverings featuring all 31 team logos. Everybody wigged out about it, and then they found out, oh, my goodness, it's for charity. Proceeds go to Feeding America and Food Bank's Canada COVID-19 response fund. But here's the thing. I mean, this is just kind of like putting it out in the world that we're going to have to wear face masks when we go watch hockey this fall right like this is this is kind of the the, when i saw these i'm like oh great charity oh great when you go to the, the supermarket you can represent your team but also we are being conditioned to understand that you're going to be wearing a face mask when you go watch a game this fall
1: that's the takeaway i got it from it too and look the nhl is not the only league doing this the nba and the wnba already put theirs out fanatics is selling ones for the nfl but yeah for the NHL, it's just good business. If you do this, it's good branding, and it also, like you said, gets fans prepared for what's next. And what's next is definitely different than the reality we're used to.
0: Yeah, and and again, if if nothing else, you have to give the the NHL credit um, for uh, creating something that people will like to wear. Um, for uh, you know, being forward thinking and knowing that hey. We're going to have to uh, figure out something when we go back to games, but also giving the world a chance to make jokes like don't wear the Red Wings one because everything gets through it. I mean, it's pretty so... great to put those things into the world at this point, creating joy and memes, really the NHL's uh, forte coming up on the show today. Oh, it's a good one. Our old friend Chris Johnston joins us from Sportsnet to talk about the latest in the NHL's restart plans and also a bit about the big news out of the Chicago Blackhawks making a change at the top, the tippy top. And then Kirk Overhart, NHL agent, comes on to discuss the exception player idea that he put out in the world this week uh, in which we can finally start paying NHL stars the money that their peers in other sports get through a special exception against the salary cap. It's a really fascinating conversation. All that and much more on this edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wyszynski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey I'm Greg Wyshynski senior NHL writer
1: I'm Emily Kaplan and on this day of quarantine Greg I woke up and made myself a smoothie and instead of turmeric I put cayenne in it by accident
0: oh sheesh.
1: that was a That's... nasty gulp
0: but I bet you're awake um and this day in quarantine I woke up at six o'clock because I thought I had a radio hit at six thirty, but it turned out it was at seven thirty. but luckily I'm all caffeined up so everything's cool um so the the news that that's kind of come out since our Monday morning uh, COVID-19 NHL uh, roundup is the idea that there is serious discussions inside the NHL about the season potentially starting as late as December. Now, to me, when I heard this, it only spoke to one thing, which is I think as we get deeper into this process and trying to figure out the summer restart and doing these hubs of teams and all this other stuff, the real focus, I think, is going to be on next season. Already you've heard we're not going to do things this summer that, that are going to dramatically affect our, our ability to play 82 games next season. Uh, that's been on the record for weeks. But I think the more you hear people, for example, Tom Dundon of the Carolina Hurricanes being one, talk about the necessity of having fans back in the building if we're going to play games in 2020, 2021, the more it starts making sense that you're going to push the start of that season as far as you possibly can to try to make it a situation where fans are comfortable coming back, even in a limited capacity, to start buying hot dogs and beer again.
1: The NHL throughout all of this has been consulting infectious disease experts and government experts. And I love the word expert because it just proves (laughs) that you're an expert. But they're on top of this. And all that we've been hearing from these experts long is prepare for the second wave. It's going to happen, especially as we see here in the U.S. Governments start to open. It makes us far more susceptible to it. The second wave is supposed to happen sometime in the fall, right when NHL teams tend to convene for the training camps and begin the regular season. So it's not preposterous to start hearing these ideas. Well, well, maybe we start in December. Maybe we don't start on time. Um, I do think we're going to be looking at a different reality next season. You know, Gary Bettman came out initially, like you said, and said, we're not going to do anything that will compromise the integrity of next season. But let's face it, that's almost impossible at this point. And... Next season is going to look different no matter which way you spin it, whether it's less fans in the crowd, no fans in the crowd, starting in November, starting in December. And I also think the schedule and certain ten pole events like the All-Star Game, bye weeks, the Christmas break, those aren't going to be what they used they usually are. And I do feel for someone like the Florida Panthers who are supposed to host the All-Star Game this year. It's supposed to be a celebration of all things Florida. I know they're still in regular talks with the NHL about planning, but... You have to wonder, could that event go on? Like, is that reasonable at this point?
0: Yeah, especially when it's just to bring people together, (laughs) whether it's fans or sponsors or whatever. Uh, and then you start thinking about things like the Winter Classic in Minnesota. You start thinking about things like the outdoor game in Raleigh and, uh, and whether it's, whether it's even advantageous to try to stage those things when you're doing them because you can, you know, put 50,000 people in a place to watch a hockey game. Like, that's why you do it. It's a cash cow, right? And have them all buy the gear and stuff. We'll see how everything plays out there. Um, the other sports around the world are starting to uh, rumble and, and tumble towards potential restarts. Uh, we wrote about on Monday what's happening in La Liga in Spain for soccer. They're not the only league that's trying to make a comeback in soccer in Europe. Uh, the NBA made news in looking at ways to potentially have... Players start uh, working out together and training together um, in different cities around the country. Um, it's funny; like it, it seems like the the impetus of that is uh, half the league threatening to fly to Atlanta to start working out in gyms because Georgia was opening up, uh, up this this week so quickly. Uh, and, and then the, the Hawks like,
1: freaking out about it.
0: Yeah, right. And the Hawks are like, "Yeah, we're like we could have some people come, but not everybody." So the NBA had to kind of react to that. Um, where do you think we are on, on, on camps and players training? It does seem like some states are starting to open up and others aren't. Um, is there any way to do this in a consistent way where, say, if you are a member of the San Jose Sharks here in Santa Clara County where I live and, you know, you're in shelter in place and through the end of May, uh, you are in a dramatically different situation than, say, a member of the Dallas Stars in Texas, which is, uh, certainly starting to open up in a, in a pretty significant way.
1: Yeah. I emailed Bill Daly about this over the weekend once the NBA news came out. And I said, are you guys going to do something similar? And he essentially said, we're, we've begun to explore the options. No decision yet. But we're recording this on Wednesday. It's April 29th. On Thursday is when the NHL's current isolation period ends. And the NHL is going to have to send a new directive to its club of players of what they do. So I do expect a decision pretty soon. I do think they want to start moving into stage two. They're in stage one now, which is isolation. Stage two is starting to gather to gather to together in small groups. And I think they're not really looking at this as like a competitive disadvantage for some areas and not other areas. They just want players to start getting into that stage so they could possibly progress to stage three. Um, I would not be shocked if facilities start open, but I also wouldn't be shocked if the NHL just says, let's hold back. Let's wait to see what the NBA does and, and how it goes for them. The NBA now is extended there, you know, opening the facilities till May 8th. Um, because, let's face it, they've kind of followed the NBA's lead on a lot of this so far, including shutting down their season a day after the <laughs> NBA did.
0: It's very true. Um, although Gary Bettman swears that they don't need the NBA's lead uh, to establish the things that they do. But I think being that they're both arena sports, they're uh, they're tied together. Finally, uh Competition committee type situation going on in the NHL. We learned this week that the NHL and the NHLPA are getting together and there is a panel of players including Connor McDavid, John Tavares, Ron Hainsey, and, uh, and, uh, James Van Riemsdijk, who are involved in this committee to, uh, to help work with the league to figure out a way back. And, uh, and that's good. And, and I'm very happy again to see Connor involved in this stuff. I've long said that Connor McDavid is, much more engaged on these league issues than any young superstar player I've covered um in the last 15 years. And uh, it's cool to see him a part of this too. But again, the, the, the thing I like about this is it's a reminder, hopefully, that whatever the NHL decides to do when restarting this league, it's going to take the input of the players and the, imp- the endorsement of the players for it to happen. Uh, which brings us to our last topic, Emily, which is... Players aren't exactly happy with the idea of being ripped away from their families for months on end, are they?
1: No. Philip Deneau uh, of the Montreal Canadiens brought this up yesterday on Tuesday, and that started to get a bunch of reaction. And if you listen to Dr. Fauci's latest directives on reopening sports, he gave a great interview with the New York Times. He pretty much said everyone needs to be committed to this. Everyone needs to commit to the fact that they will be isolated. They will be living in a bubble. And the NHL hasn't quite figured out yet who gets to live in that bubble. Will families be there? Will players, um, kids be there? Will they have to be alone? And I do think that's going to be a major talking point. So I'm glad that they do have players' input because they will be talking about these things. I know there's an argument that these are millionaires. They need to make sacrifice. That said, all that's thrown out the window. It's a pandemic. We got to let people feel comfortable and feel safe and feel, you know, I I would just hope that everyone considers that a lot of these players um, have family lives that they have to consider. Like I think of players with – Wives or kids that have compromised immune systems or battling health issues. And of course that's first and foremost on their mind. And of course it should be. And I know the NHL is going to be sensitive to that, but I just think this illustrates there's so many more fine details that need to be figured out besides, Hey, let's just go to the four hub cities and play and finish the season and recoup 500 million of that 1.2 billion dollars that we're going to lose.
0: Indeed. All right. Let's talk to our old friend Chris Johnson about more of these topics and other stuff, uh, because he's a good guy to talk to.
1: And now joining us on the line is senior hockey reporter at Sportsnet, but a good friend of us and a good friend of ESPN and Ice, it's Chris Johnston. Chris, we have to begin by asking, what did the last couple uh, days and weeks look like in your life?
2: I would imagine they're they're like most people's. You know, my wife and I live in a pretty small apartment in downtown Toronto, so it's uh, been about negotiating that to, you know, share workspace and all that type of stuff, but watched uh, far more netflix than i normally would certainly at this time of year especially and just tried to follow the rules and and hope for for better days ahead but uh you know i really can't complain and obviously i'm very fortunate that uh my job so far has not been impacted and and everyone that i care about is is healthy so we're just hoping that, that everyone can come through this together
0: well said not to derail this with one of my pop culture whims but what are you watching on netflix cj
2: Oh, I'm so predictable. Like, honestly, I, it, it has to be about sports or I'm not interested. So I ripped through the F1 series. I, I ripped through Sunderland till I die. Uh, like the rest of the free world, I'm watching the Michael Jordan documentary that comes out here. Um, I, I, I'm so bad. Like, I have almost no interest in anything else. And I realize that that's a terrible way to, to view the world. But, but I do miss sports. I'm a huge sports fan in addition to, you know, covering the NHL for a living. so. Um, you know, if there's if there's any tangential sports related documentary or movie that you can recommend, I, I'm all ears for it.
0: Yeah, we've we've been we've been high on using sports docs, especially especially like if you've got the Thirty for Thirty archive on ESPN Plus or whatever to uh, to fill that void. All right, well, but I'm on, glad on you the, mentioned the big. I'm glad,
1: um, no, I'm glad you mentioned the big C word because I feel like we've joked last time that you're a senior candidate correspondent on this podcast, but you kind of are. <laughs> and you and I have texted a little bit about this, but I'd love to open up this discussion to the podcast. You know, we keep talking about the NHL wanting to restart. And for Greg and I, a lot of it comes through the lens of American politics and American government. And I would just love to know what you see as the perspective in Canada right now. And, you know, you and I have talked, the biggest hurdle, it sounds so simple, but it's not, is the Canada-U.S. Uh, border opening. Like, what are people in Canada saying about that and, and what do they think?
2: Well, it certainly seemed like the the political discussion in the countries has been different on this. I mean, actually, just now in the last couple of days, we've had some of the the premiers that run the provinces start to maybe talk a little bit about what opening up might look like. But but certainly, it's nowhere near as advanced or specific or uh, forthright as is what I've seen with some of the governors in the U.S. And you know, obviously, even Donald Trump is was encouraging them to to, to do some things that, that we just haven't really reach that level of conversation here. Um, And if anything, I think it just seems as though we're we're maybe a little bit more conservative about it or unsure about what's to come. You know, I I don't know what to mark those differences down to. I mean, the the one difference that I do think of, though, ultimately when it comes to decision with the NHL is that hockey also, you know, occupies a pretty unique spot in our our general culture and in our country. And, you know, we've got it on the the $5 bill as hockey depicted on it. Um, You know, so it, it will be interesting to see how the government's, you know, treat specifically what the NHL wants to do, because, um, you know, I would almost say it's not just another sport here or another sports league or not viewed exclusively as a business. So it might be two competing theories, but certainly at least to this point, as we're talking, we, we really haven't seen any specific plans for when we should be leaving our houses again, or when restaurants might open or tattoo parlors in Georgia or whatever. I mean, we're not having any of that kind of discussion uh, that I've seen publicly, uh, up here in Canada yet.
1: Now the focus has shifted to these regional hubs and having games there. And I know that Toronto is being mentioned as a possibility and they've said they're exploring it. Like, I can't wrap my head around us returning to Toronto at some point this summer, that huge city. Like, you live in Toronto. Can you imagine it? Does that seem feasible right now?
2: The only reason it seems feasible, I guess, is because the Leafs have been so open in their desire to see it happen. But, you know, for the reasons you're saying, you know, you, you would think, you know, other cities like Columbus that we're hearing, you know, tend to make a little bit more sense, less, less busy. I think a little bit easier to sort of lock down a a bubble around the arena itself, because, you know, there's sort of an area in a city like Columbus to do that. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of other concerns, um, you know, right where the arena is located right in the heart of the city here uh, in Toronto. So, you know, I don't know exactly how that's going to go. My understanding of the process is that it's a little bit like a bid process that, that, you know, teams not only have to be willing, but they have to kind of, Pitch um, the league, you know, on why they, they should be considered for a host, and you know certainly the Leafs have been pretty aggressive in doing so. Brendan Shanahan, the team president, you know, was on radio here uh, in the last week and was was open about his desire, and I know behind the scenes that they're, they they view this as something they'd like to see happen. So, you know, at this point, I, I guess we, you know, it's a consideration because you know the the spread of the virus actually hasn't turned out to be nearly as bad in Toronto as initially hoped, but you know, based on what I've come to learn about this, that that could change, you know, certainly in the amount of time we're talking about before games could be played. And, you know, we've seen other big cities like in New York city where, you know, it's become a major problem. And and you know, I think the concern here in Toronto for a lot of people is that we could see something similar, but um, you know, when you have a powerful organization uh, like the one that runs the Leafs, we, there's lots of uh, nice hotels right beside the arena. And there's, there's certainly other, areas to skate around the city you know many of them uh, for the other teams to practice in you know i guess there's the infrastructure here i just wonder if if it'll all make sense you know when it comes time to really pick through the bids and and, and do what's most sensible
0: can you conceive them finishing the regular season i, I still can't and, and i think that the more pushback you hear from guys that are outside the playoff picture that are just like why would we leave our families for a, a month to you know make sure the Islanders get to 75 games played or some such. Like I feel like there's going to be more and more of those guys. I know Philip Deneau the other day kind of put put that out in the world. I mean in your mind how do you see this summer thing playing out if they actually attempt it?
2: Well, I can see them finishing it only because there's a financial reason to do so, right? I mean there, there are the regional TV and sponsorship deals the teams have and so I can understand if your job is to try to tackle this huge problem and, and, you know, ensure, I guess, you're trying to mitigate losses at this point if you're in the league's position. I can, I can sort of put my mind around why they've tried to come to that conclusion, but but you're right. I mean, there certainly is a degree of pushback there, and, and I must admit I'm a little conflicted about this because I, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to the players, and, and certainly this is, you know, a health crisis at its core that, that affects everyone on an individual level. You know, there's obviously players that are, are going to have family considerations and, and such. But, you know, on the other hand of this, I, I do feel as though, you know, all employees as society starts to open back up are going to be asked to take on some risk in, in returning to the workplace. I, I don't think there is going to be a perfect, you know, when it comes to, you know, how we, we get society back going. And, and ultimately, I think if individual players don't want to play, that there, there are going to be others who, who do so, you know, in, in their place, you know, if, if guys... Don't want to do that. I, I think that there's there's lots of younger HL players that would take those jobs, and so you know I think it's it's a difficult consideration for the NHLPA. You know, ultimately, I, I guess the timing of this will will dictate if it happens. You know, the challenge too is some of these games will be meaningless. I mean, any game more or less the Detroit Red Wings could conceivably have to play in a season where they're already officially eliminated from playoff contention. Is going to be a difficult one. I would assume you know teams like that would even consider resting some of their more veteran players. Or a team like San Jose, for example, you know might use it as an opportunity to give other players those games, but but save you know what's you know a pretty pretty veteran roster from having to, to go through that process. You know I think some of that still has to be worked through, but um, you know it's going to be a tricky line to dance. I, I think you're going to see some degree of regular season games just because that that seems to be where the wind's blowing, but. You know, if, if the players get more of a voice and especially the guys on those teams that are really have no chance of playing playoff games, you know, strike up, you know, maybe, maybe we see it's only 24 teams coming back to play regular season games or something like that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Siege. There's huge news in Chicago this week. Um, the Blackhawks fired their president, John McDonough, who was really architect behind a lot of the behind the scenes stuff over the last decade and their three cup runs. And what shocked people, I think the most was the timing, um, the fact that they did this during a pandemic. And if you listen to Rocky Works, the owner say it, he said he used this opportunity over the last month to really reassess where the organization was. And I'm curious around the league, do you think that's going to be a trend? Like how much business is getting done right now? And do you think that teams are taking restock in, in their front offices saying, here's where we can add value or here's where we can make changes? Or do you think more of the thought process is we're in such an unprecedented time. Let's just keep everybody weather through this and we'll figure it out on the other side.
2: Well, it seems to me that there's an opportunity here, especially if you're a team, you know, that really isn't factoring into what's going to happen, you know, with 2019-20. And, and you know, it, it does. I get the impression, at least, certainly seven weeks into this now, um, that that obviously the teams are staying up to date on, on what the NHL's planning to try to re- resume, and they're thinking about how they might get their facilities open and have a training camp and those things. But at the top levels, a lot of organizations, I think, there's a lot of longer term planning going on already. Uh, in terms of how they might navigate an uncertain cap situation, the decisions they're going to have to make whenever the offseason arrives. And, and, you know, if you're a team like the Blackhawks, you know, I think, again, at the very top, they're they're already looking at the next year in in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I I don't expect a rash of firings or hirings during this, but, you know, it's not totally surprising to me that that teams would use this this period of reflection where they really can take stock of things to, to make some big decisions and, you know we, we saw Jar Gallant uh, you know being interviewed during this period by the New Jersey Devils. Uh, I, if this keeps going on for many more weeks, you know, say even before training camps open, I wouldn't wouldn't totally shock me if, if you see more teams kind of use the time to, to to their advantage to do those sorts of things. And you know, on on one hand, you know, we're looking at next season probably not starting before November or December, potentially even in January. So there's a lot of time for for these organizations. But you know, I I think especially if you're kind of at the bottom of the heap, you, you should be looking ahead and, and making these decisions. And especially in a role like president, uh, you know, I don't know exactly uh, what went on there with John McDonough, but but clearly this that there's some sort of disagreement. Something must have led to this. There was no compelling reason to do this right now. Um, but you know, I don't think it hurts for potentially to rip the bandaid off and you know give yourself some time to, to do a search for a president and, and you know bring some stability. Uh, you know, away from the ice,
0: you know, during this period where nothing's going on on it. Yeah. Based on all that stuff that used to float around when Q was there and his job being in jeopardy almost every season, despite their success, there's there's a Game of Thrones book to be written about the Blackhawks, I think, at some point that'll come out and it'll be real fascinating to read. Um, the
2: next chapter might still be good. You know, whatever happens from here on out. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Right. Rocky's kids run on the team. Uh, last one for me, Siege, and Thanks for the time, man. Uh, can you? Where, where are we on, on the, 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 the potential of a, uh, June 5th draft? I saw Bob McKenzie yesterday, I think, saying that, uh, the pushback has, has maybe affected the, that happening. I know a lot of GMs around the league were kind of convinced it was going to happen because Bettman was the one who floated it. Uh, where do you think we are on it? And, and did you, were you able to wrap your brain around how it would have worked? With regards to teams being, say, unable to really make any trades if we did the draft before the season's done.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a tough one to get a handle on where it's going to play out because of the fact. Okay, it's one thing if teams and individual GMs don't like it, and there's certainly plenty of, of guys that fall into that that category. But I mean, if it's being pushed out there by the, you know, the, the guy at the top of the league who usually says how things are going to go. I mean, I. You know, I, I I can't even offer a prediction if we're going to get it. I almost feel like it's in the cards to do it, and, you know, I don't hate it. I, I didn't like it initially, but the more I've, I've sort of thought about it, and especially with the fact that if they get this piece of business done now, you know, it does potentially give them a, a few more options in, in what will probably be a shorter offseason. You know, allows them theoretically to play nineteen twenty a little later into the fall and still have a, a quick turnaround before the 2021 season starts than if you – have to conduct the draft at that point in time, which, which, you know, will face some similar issues like say prospects that are playing already in leagues in Europe or other things that, um, you know, teams might want to get access to. Um, you know, the, the biggest, one of the, the big complaints without question though, is, is, you know, GMs feel that, that the draft is a place that they can do a lot of their business when it comes to trades. You have teams like the Montreal Canadians, for example, that have, you know, in the last few years have made a few few deals around the draft and, own 14 draft picks, um, you know, for the 2020 draft, and essentially they would be barred from, from doing any player transactions. It would only be, you know, pick-for-pick pick type of deals that, that you could have in that kind of scenario. But, um, you know, because this is, is coming from the top uh, until it's dead, I would say it's, it's likely to happen, you know, despite some, some of the issues. And, and, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you know, based on what we saw from the, the NFL draft ratings and, and the interest that created – you know, I, again, I, I think in unusual circumstances it might not be as crazy as it initially sounds. And, and you know, we did play 85 percent of the season, so yes, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a perfect draft lottery, but it is a pretty representative sample of where the teams you know sat. If if you're you know building a lottery off of, of that percentage of the games, and uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll wait till next week. I know some teams are waiting to hear this week, but uh, clearly a decision has to be made in, in the next few days.
1: Siege, we really appreciate you. Where can our listeners follow your work and see your day-old takes on the Michael Jordan documentary?
2: (laughs) I guess Twitter is the best place, Reporter Chris, or Instagram, although that's that's usually just more personal, stupid, goofy stuff. But um, I appreciate you guys, too. You guys are doing great work during this, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person to to clink a glass at some point.
0: Hell yeah. Thanks, CJ. Thanks, CJ thanks to cj for coming on to talk about nhl topics including the draft so as i mentioned bob mckenzie's not exactly convinced that the nhl draft is going to happen on june 5th even though gary bettman put it out in the world and when he does that a lot of people believe that it's an an inevitability do you think we're going to see the draft that early and and i guess the other question is should we see the draft that early
1: You know, what's interesting. My first instinct was no. There's no possible way you can do this before the season ends. The biggest issue and biggest hurdle we've got to get over is the lottery order. We don't know that. But then there's so many other things, like these conditions with draft picks. If X team makes the playoffs, the first-round pick is this year or next year. And then there's a whole aspect of trades. This is a busy time for teams doing trades. You don't do that unless the season's completed. I just think that's too many logistical hurdles to get over. That said, I was really interested in listening to Brendan Shanahan – pretty much say, hey, we at the Maple Leafs, I've talked to Kyle Dubas, we're in favor of having it soon. What's the difference between having it in June or in August and September? We already have all the scouting work done. There's nothing that's really going to change from a, a scouting perspective over the next couple weeks or months. And we're going to get to a situation in August and September when we've got to go through free agency. We've got to figure out all these other things and logistics. Why not just get this out of the way?
0: I can't. You see, that's the part I don't understand is that, yeah, there is going to be an off season of... Trades and and signings and, and, and business. And that's usually kicked off by the ability of teams, like the Maple Leafs did last year at the draft, to move around assets that have a lot of money against the cap and do so through the trading of draft picks. And that's the part of this I can't understand. And it's twofold. One is the functionality of the draft as a trade marketplace. The idea that you can offload problems on your cap through the draft. You can move up and down the draft by trading picks and players to get what you want. The the trade market part of the draft, to me, is the most essential part of it. And it's taking away a really valuable tool from teams if you have the draft before the season is completed, because you certainly can't trade a player that you're then going to need for a playoff run. Uh, Maybe you can. Maybe you want your, your team chaos. And like the idea of a guy who no longer belongs to the team putting his health and safety on the line for that team. I just don't know if it's going to happen. And the other part of this, too, is, um, you know, the trade – one of the reasons the NHL wants to do this is the idea that having the NHL draft on television will be a thing for people to watch. It will be a thing that hockey fans can watch and be reconnected with the game, get them excited about hockey coming back this summer – um, they no doubt saw the ratings the NFL draft uh, generated on ESPN and said to themselves, boy, give me a slice of that, even if there are dramatic differences between those two drafts. I mean, you know most of the players in the NFL draft from their college football days. You probably know most casual hockey fans probably know five people that are going to be going in the NHL draft, at, if that, um, which is why you need to re- read Chris Peters uh, to learn you, learn you a little bit about prospects. So I think the trades are actually one of the real reasons why the casual fan – pays attention to the NHL draft, is they know that you're going to see P.K. Subban traded to the Devils. You're going to see Patrick Marlowe traded to the Carolina Hurricanes, then bought out, whatever. Um, you're going to see these deals done. And you're also going to be marinating in the rumors that then lead to other stuff on July 1st. That's why you watch the draft. That's why you read about the draft. That's why we go to the draft. It's not to see who from the Sarnia Sting gets taken 17th overall. It's to find out from these GMs what's going to happen in the coming weeks. So if you wanted to treat the draft as a way for fans to get reengaged in hockey, and then you neuter the thing that makes the draft so compelling for those fans by not allowing teams to make these player transactions because the draft is happening months before the completion of the season. I just think it's, it's kind of defeating the purpose in my mind.
1: The counter argument to that would be, yes, that's traditionally what the draft has been. And when I, Think of my images of the draft and being at the draft the last three years. I think of some random kid in the stands in a suit with his family going up to the stage, taking the picture with his jersey, being ushered off and onto the next one. It's just kind of conveyor belt style transactional like that. What if we take the best parts of the NFL draft, the virtual NFL draft, where we were inside these players' homes, got to know their backstories? Yes, a lot of them were some very sad backstories (laughs) that we got regurgitated again and again on those graphics. But what if we use this as an opportunity to play up these prospects a little more and hear their stories and use that as entertainment? And what if this is a chance for the NHL to reimagine its draft? And yes, you pointed out there's big instinctive differences between the NHL draft and the NFL draft the best three players in the NHL draft we'll see on rosters next year. The rest of them we won't see for a couple years and we'll just get the prospect articles from Chris Peters, which again, you should read. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, if, what if we make this about the players more? And, and what yeah. if, what if that's, you know, I understand what Gary Beman's saying, let's capitalize on the slow sk- sports schedule right now, but you're going to have to put it on a vent if you're going to do that.
0: Yeah. Make it less transactional and more about the players. That's a possibility. I do like the idea of applying the, uh, and the NFL, uh, misery template to, um, potential NHL players. So you'll th- see things like, uh, you know, struggled with, uh, creating a backyard rink. Um, parents' SUV wasn't large enough for both of his hockey bags. Oh. I mean, real hardship from hockey prospects.
1: That is a broad brush, my friend.
0: Um, also the thing that I think I remember, the site I remember most from covering the NHL draft is day two when Ken Campbell from the hockey news would show up in shorts. Because it was always sort of like a schools out for summer vibe on the second yes, day of the draft, yes. yes. <laughs>
1: Which is all the more reason to reimagine it and saying, "What if it's not just a throwaway event at the end of the NHL calendar? What if we reimagine it?"
0: Exactly. It's reimagined. All right. Uh, I love the
1: word reimagine more than anything. Yeah, year.
0: I'm going to apply it again to our next guest. Kurt Overhart is an NHL agent, and he is trying to reimagine how we pay the elite players in this league. All right, joining us now is NHL player agent Kirk Overhard who made a huge huge bit of news this week to the point where I believe his website was actually crashing uh when he when he put this plan out, the exception player rule um, in which we are rethinking the way that we pay the elite players in this league uh was a thing that was was uh, was put up by Kurt and he joins us now on the podcast. Greg and Greg and Emily here, Kurt and um, I think this is a really interesting idea. If you wanted to just share the the, the the cliff notes of what you put out there for the listeners, what is the exception player rule and how does it work?
3: Uh, thanks, Greg and Emily. Um, it, it's pretty straightforward. It's basically, you know, there's a, there's a hard cap, there's an upper limit that uh, the NHL teams uh, can spend to now. And what the exception player model would do is it, it would enable teams to make their own value judgment. So it's not required. No team's compelled to do it. It's completely up to the team and each individual team. But if they want to designate one player, you know, it could be a super elite player. Uh, it could just be one of their star players to fall outside of the cap system. So instead of having uh, 23 guys, you know, that you have to have within uh, the hard cap system, you have 22 so you can take one player out. Um, in some instances, you know, we do have super League players in this league. One of the things that Brian and I talked about you know, in our opinion piece was that, you know, compared to the other leagues, even on a pro rata basis, our star players, our superstar players are significantly underpaid for the value they bring to all of us, you know, in the game, uh, you know, marketing the league, marketing the team. Um, you know, putting people in the seats, etc. So, it, it, we try to serve a you know a couple different causes and and remedy uh, part of the system of, by doing that.
1: So, one of the reasons that guys are underpaid, part of it is the cap, but also it's a hockey culture thing. And what I've learned, and guys never want to make too much. How much do you think this kind of safeguards against that? Saying like, hey, guys, you know what? It's okay to make your worth out there in the open market.
3: Exactly, and we talk about that in the in the opinion piece and. And the way that that's dealt with, it it definitely safeguards it because um, it's good for the other 22 guys. If someone falls outside of the cap, you know, if a team wants to pay 10 or 12 or you know 13 million, 14 million dollars on a superstar player, um, his his fellow teammates aren't going to begrudge him for that because. the remaining of the upper limit, the 22, remaining 22 players just share in that. So it, it takes that away from it. And the other thing that it does is a lot of people are like, well, gee, what about small market teams? And, you know, part of this is I, I we really believe from an economic standpoint. And, and I want to point out that uh, we, we took a long view on this. This is this is not a remedy to this unfortunate COVID situation. This is, this is the reality if the Players Association – and the league were to agree to a long-term CBA over time. We all know the league will be healthy. Um, there'll be people going to games and the television contract will be done. And so we, we want people to see the forest through the trees here, but you know, the long view is um, you know, there's a lot of star players who've done a lot for the game and they have been significantly underpaid.
0: Oh yeah. And, and that's where I completely agree with you with, I, I mean, you know, back in, in the last season of 2005, I was a huge proponent of the luxury tax over the cap system. Um, I I think the cap has effectively restrained the, the elite players in this league from making the money they should be making, uh, commiserate with what the superstar players in other sports make, which was a point that you made in the piece, and I thought was a really good one. Um, I had a a, a a question about the contracts. Now, one thing I, I was confused about in reading your piece was, are these contracts still in keeping with the contractual rules that the nhl has for like the increases in salary from year to year and that kind of thing or are we are we kind of blowing out all of the cap related rules in giving somebody a a a blockbuster contract like this
3: no great question i mean i I would listen all those details would have to be agreed to between the league and the players association. So we're not trying to be presumptuous. We're just trying to be critical thinkers. We're trying to put a creative solution out there for a couple of issues that exist, but you know, the, the exception player would be a player that's, that is, you know, outside of his entry-level contract. So it's outside of the rookie contract. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, as far as assuming it, I, I think that the teams would have to adhere, and the player would have to adhere to, you know, the, the different restrictions as, as far as increases year to year and structure. Uh, obviously, the amount would be the big, big thing, and you know, the average annual value would be the big thing. You know, right now we have a term. You know, we have a maximum term uh, in the league, and you know, whatever that maximum term ends up being between the association and the league, I think that would have to be adhered to as well. So uh, it's just. You know, if you've got a if you've got a star player, if it's if a team's got Connor McDavid or a team's got Nathan McKinnon, it, it allows those owners to make a value judgment. What do we want to pay that player? Uh, and this enables us to keep the rest of our team together and to build a championship team and to keep a championship team. In some instances, you know, you could have a team like looking back in the rearview mirror, a team like Chicago. You know, they win three Stanley Cups. They've got an unbelievable team. They've got star players. Well, maybe maybe you don't have one player making significantly more than the other, but if you have two of your star players making the same money, which they do, the the team could designate one of those players as the exception player, falls outside the cap. That's over $10.5 million that's outside the cap. Maybe the Blackhawks could have kept their team together. So, you know, it's not bad to have dynasties in this league. It's not bad to have big market teams carry some of the weight. But, you know, there's other markets. The, the market in Tampa, that owner's done such a great job. You know, the proof's in the pudding and the team's success. Um, you know, these are competitive uh, people that own these teams. And why not let them make the decision on one player outside the system?
0: Yeah, and Tampa could probably use this rule next season. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I think I think my the, the question I had, though, is is so – I agree with you. I think dynasties are great for the NHL. I think super teams are great for the NHL. I wish these guys would put their whatever hockey culture nonsense aside and, and Miami heat it up occasionally and all come together and want to play together and make super teams. Now, the, the other question I had about, about the, the plan was, let's say, let's say Austin Matthews is making X number of dollars as, as an exception player and he's like, you know where I want to go? New York City. I want to be a Ranger. Ah, but they already have Panarin as their exception player and they can't really take that Matthews contract on. Um, or, or, or even if he's like a free agent, they can't bring him in because they're already paying Panarin this money and, and Matthews is, is getting this money. Would it be a potentially, th- a potential thing where these exception players, if they wanted to move from team to team, would then have to take a haircut on their contract in order to go where there's already an exception exception player.
3: Um, yeah, I mean that's a multi level question, as you know. I know it's very complicated. Assuming a player's contract was up, yeah, if they want to make a, if they want to make their own, that's the other thing. You allow players to make their own value judgment. So if a player wants to go to a market that already has an exception player because they want to play there, they want to win there, they think that's the best opportunity for them and their family. Yeah, I mean. You know, it, 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 it's not just all one sided player wise, you know. So, yeah, if a player wants to go into a market where there's already an exception player and the club wants to keep that specific player as the exception player, yeah, absolutely. Because um, it's got to go both ways, right? Right.
1: So, Kurt, you mentioned to me before we were recording that before you put this out there, you ran it by all of your clients just to, you know, see what they felt and they were comfortable putting it out there. But, your website crashed. Everyone in hockey read this. You talk to GMs in the league <laughs> office all the time. Uh, what's the reaction been? You know, I've heard some people say, oh, Gary Bettman would never go for this, but that seems too simplistic. There's more nuance. Like, what have some of the conversations been like since you put this out there?
3: Well, I mean, listen, first, of, of course, Commissioner Bettman would, is the first thing, the second and the third thing they're going to say is no way, no way, no way. We all know the league's done an outstanding job since forth of cost containment. That's what the system's been all about. All this does is this, this allows the system to evolve. Uh, I think this allows the system to evolve to a address the superstar player, not being so significantly underpaid. It puts, uh, it empowers owners to compete amongst themselves, which I think competition is great. Uh, Let them make their own value judgment. Right. Um, But, You know, yes, I've had a lot of conversations, uh, mainly with some general managers and a couple of owners. And, you know, we got to remember as well, like no general manager or owner is going to speak positively of this in the in the media because they'll get in trouble with the league. I mean, that's just how (laughs) leagues are run. It doesn't matter whether it's the National Hockey League or the NFL. But, um, uh, you know. I do think that it's important that we that we have dialogue and, and people think of different ways, you know, such as the exception player model to try to create some solutions, you know. Um One of the things we tied this model to was it it, it would give some ease in the system, some cap relief in the system. But it also, if it's done properly, uh, which has to be done between the league and the Players Association, can also help remedy in part part of the escrow situation that players incur. So um, there's a lot of things that are tied together. um, And hopefully I answered your question.
1: No, you did. And I'm just curious, though, you know, you said you've been thinking about this for some time. How many proposals or ideas have you seen similar to this of shaking up the NHL's model right now? Um, is there an appetite for it or are people constantly thinking up ideas like this or is this kind of a one-off?
3: Um, well, I mean, I don't know. Like our group, I work with a great group of people Um you know, one of them, you know, Kevin in Chicago, obviously. Mm-hmm. We just always like to ch- we like to challenge each other. But you know, when we visit with our clients, I mean, a lot of this stems from from our conversations with our clients. Our constituency, as you know, is is our clientele, the people that that pay us and the people that we work for. So, um, the people that we work for appreciate our thoughtfulness and challenging uh, coming up with ideas like this. And, and once if if they grab onto it and then we continue to have conversations about it, then it, it can be really compelling. Like literally, I think maybe a week before the season was put on pause, uh, I was in Dallas uh, to watch the Dallas uh, Nashville game. And I was out to dinner with a number of our guys on the predators. And we discussed this at length and it was a very, you know, it was a very thoughtful, engaging conversation. And, and, you know, they appreciate the time we put into it. But I think it's important that we, we all talk about stuff like this. Um, that the system that we have right now is old. It obviously works really well for owners because it it's, it's locks, you know, in the cost. But I think that, you know, opening it up a bit and – Allowing the owners to make their own decision to spend some money is a good thing, and like we mentioned in the article, if teams don't want to spend the money, then you know the league and the players' association could agree on some type of luxury tax that's, yeah. that's attached to the exception contract.
0: That's and I I loved seeing that was my favorite part of your plan to be honest. with you, The idea that um, you know we introduce some some level of luxury tax allow the certain teams that want to. Spend money to spend it and then, you know, use that to somehow benefit the smaller market teams. But I also think the other thing about smaller market teams is we've already seen how teams with lower payrolls weaponize their cap space and, and weaponize. And, and it's certainly been beneficial in some cases. And in in other cases, you know, when they do become competitive, that cap space has enabled them to, to trade for, for players. And I think that if you're a team that's on the rebuild, and you've got your exception player spot open, I mean, that really does put them at a huge advantage in trying to, say, attract a big-name free agent or or work a trade for somebody who might be a year away from free agency but is looking for a blockbuster contract. I think small market teams make out pretty well under your plan.
3: Yeah, and the the exciting thing to me, and I'm a bit of a hockey fan, the game behind the game, the business game that you're talking about, you know, enabling the hockey departments to, you know, be challenged, more challenged with their, more challenged with their trainings. Like you said, I mean, that's really important. I think the NBA has done a really good job over the last several years of capturing media, even in the off season with their system. I think the NFL, The NFL and sports to me, team sports, owns the calendar, right? I've said this before. It's like they have their draft during our second round, arguably the best round of hockey in the National Hockey League all year, and they're cannibalizing the media with the NFL draft. This, I think, enabled the game within the game. It gives us something to talk about. And, you know, if a team makes good decisions on their exception player, you know, some some GMs and some owners are like, well, you know, the league's not going to want more money in the system, and you know, if if, if teams average twelve million dollars a piece in exception player, that's X amount of dollars more in the system on the player side. I'm like, you can't look at it that way. You got to just let the owners make their own decision. If if a certain market wants to sign a player for twelve or fifteen million a year, one would think that that business person that owns that team can justify that investment based on sponsorship and media and new media and advertising, you know, let's, let's let um, a rising tide raise all ships. And that's kind of the mentality with this rather than just, you know, keeping our arms closed and try to contain costs.
1: Curt, Last one from me. And thank you for your time. I just wanted to switch gears a little bit. You know, you've got clients, dispersed all across the continent no, all across the world right now i know you've got some european guys what are you hearing from your guys about what they'd like to see with the nhl coming back and more importantly are you seeing a distinction between some of your players who are on playoff teams and some players who are not on playoff teams <laughs> of the urgency of them wanting to get back and finishing out this year
3: uh yeah the urgency thing i mean they're all you guys know hockey players and in my opinion, the best athletes, the best athletes, the best guys overall, uh, as far as you know male team sport athletes, just great people. They, they all they all they all know that they have a responsibility to go back and play. okay, That's number one. They don't take anything for granted. Um, number two, I, I think you know one of the things that I think really is gonna need to be cleared up, and'm I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, as you guys know, thank heavens, but I, I think it's going to be really important, you know with the antibody testing, before there's a vaccine that, that the players are tested uh you know arguably before they even travel back to their home city you know to see if they if they, they you know they had contact with the virus or, or their system fought it off i think from a health and safety standpoint i think you know knowledge is key and i hope that's one thing you know that the league is able to do across the board and have a policy to do it that makes sense so i mean does that make sense to you guys
0: Oh, totally, and I think it's in line with what uh, European soccer is doing. I mean, uh, um, I know La Liga, in their restart, had uh, three—I think three—rounds of testing on players even before they returned to training camp. So, I mean, I think that's. It only makes sense if if other leagues are doing that that the NHL would follow suit. My last one for you, Kurt, is um, about the uh, the off season, which you know, according to the NHL, is going to last about two weeks. <laughs> uh <laughs> assuming assuming that we're, that free agency is what we you know what we all expect it to be. I was wondering about your your thoughts on on this notion of contracts looking different. Um in the sense that we know that escrow is going to be a huge issue next season. Uh it may be a huge issue in the in the following season after that. We've already seen two contracts signed in Columbus where uh Corposalo and Merslickens took a lower base salary in their first year. Um in theory, because they know the percentage of escrow is going to be so high, and then took a higher percentage, or a higher base salary in their second year. There's been a lot of speculation from agents and GMs behind the scenes that longer-term deals are going to look like this too, where the first few years are going to be a lower base salary, and then it'll get bigger when the market improves. I was just wondering, overall, your thoughts on on the shutdown, the pause. Its effect on on what we're going to see free agency wise in, in contracts being signed. I know Crick Smith is one of your guys that's that's UFA this summer, and uh, and whether you know you do think that you know backloaded contracts and and short shorter term deals to get guys back to market quickly are going to be in vogue uh, uh, this offseason?
3: Great question. I mean, we don't even know what the end landscape looks like. So your question is is pointed. I mean, it. I. I Obviously, we always have to adjust to the landscape that's in front of us, and we have to adjust as representatives uh, for our players to the landscape and the money that's available to us. Uh, So, yeah, you're you're spot on. Um, You know, the the escrow issue, I think, is interesting. You didn't ask this, but you mentioned it. Like, you know, like our position, and in speaking to our clients, like I've worked with players since 1992, and, uh, you know, my position on escrow is, I mean, I understand how the CBA is uh, written, but, you know, escrow was sold as a tool uh, to order to assure that the owners, um, if, if there was any overspending based on the budget that the league actually projected for revenues, it was mm-hmm. a tool for teams to get some money back based on the partnership and their share. And, and the league and the owners sold this back in 2004 and 2005. I had guys in the room, one of them still an active player, but they sold it just as a tool um, because the you know because as owners they assume all the risk with business, and part of that is, is a pandemic. This unfortunate situation, escrow was not created to save the owners, okay, uh, <laughs> from a pandemic. So I think I think hopefully there's a larger conversation out there. Um, not all this can come out of the players' hides and the players' compensation. Um, you got to remember as well. We mentioned this in the in the opinion pieces. The owners, you know, are sharing $1.1 billion in expansion fees that fall outside of hockey-related revenue for some unknown reason, but they did. So, you know, how much of that money needs to be put in to mitigate just the next uh, probably season and a half until we all get back on track? So there's a lot of big issues out there that the league and the Players Association are going to have to deal with. And, you know, I think the easy answer is I think we have to be really careful, you know, maybe – if for some reason the system ends up where there's not a lot of money in it, you might have to be careful. And like you said, sh- sign a short-term deal for a guy. If, if the, guy, the player believes in himself and the player is healthy, you sign a short-term deal, you still get the, the money. But you, you know that in two years that there will be more money in the system based on a new TV contract and the gambling revenue and everything else. So there are a lot of variables. That's
0: a new TV stuff.
1: contract with ESPN, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you guys tell me. Oh, buddy, that is way above the pay grade on this podcast.
3: (laughs) Yeah, likewise, (laughs) likewise, yeah.
1: Well, Kurt, we really appreciate your time, and we just encourage all of our readers to check out this article. It's on KOSportsInc.com. And, Kurt, uh, we really appreciate you. Stay safe.
3: Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for your time.
1: Our thanks to Kurt Overhart, who is both an expert and reimagining the NHL right now, truly an unbelievable combination. And now it's time for... Hour, but mostly Greg's favorite segment of the week. Phil <laughs> Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs.
0: Our weekly oh, look at, at, at sad hyperbole, hyperbole and, and strained, strained narratives, narratives of the hockey, of the hockey media. media.
1: Good one, Randy. Good one.
0: It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's the segment each week where we talk about the hyperbole and the mistakes and the errors in judgment in the hockey media. This is kind of a hockey media adjacent. This is a, a guy who is the managing director of the Athletic UK Ed Malin Matt Malian there it is who uh dabbled in the world of hockey for the Athletic this week by ranking all of the NHL jerseys a time tested summer adventure for hockey media that gets moved up to April cuz there's no hockey to cover and uh, Ed though advance. man indeed Ed Emily uh made Two errors I believe in judgment here that we could talk about, egregious errors in my mind. Number twenty-seven on his list was the Vegas Golden Knights, and number twenty-six on his list were the New York Islanders. My God, on the Golden Knights, he said you could say that they that they did uh, that on the ice, meaning excel in their first season, but their uniforms are an uninspiring gray accented by a peculiar choice of yellows and reds and they're marooned near the foot of our list because he's british or whatever they just ended up as a crappy expensive mistake say what you will about the islanders uniform and, and when the logo of the team is as good as it is i don't think it could be 26 on any list but the vegas gold knights 27 on this list for that jersey is insanity do no, you think
1: I've been on the record several times as saying I don't trust my taste in sports uniforms. I think I go against the grain. I don't understand what the mass public likes. I personally find them visually, aesthetically pleasing. But I also don't want to um, discredit Ed's opinion here.
0: I will. He's insane. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I wouldn't trust him to operate a motor vehicle with that kind of eyesight if he thinks that the Golden Knights jerseys is wow. the 27th worst in the National Hockey League. I'll tell you that right now.
1: I'll give a disclaimer. Ed was an old Twitter buddy of mine from the football world. He used to be a football writer.
0: And now, I'm when you go. say football, you mean American football or soccer?
1: I do mean American football. Thank you for the clarification.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's get some listener mail. Sean Murphy wants to know, what happens with Seattle for expansion? Will it be delayed uh via coronavirus?
1: All indications right now are no. Seattle's on track. They should go. You should probably get a name and logo sometime during this pandemic. And uh, all operations, uh, as far as I know, are not delayed.
0: Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what, how this has impacted the key arena refurbishment. I mean, it's only been a couple months, so you imagine it's not going to be too impactful. I mean, obviously, we all know Seattle and Washington State have been uh, in, a, in a, a different level of lockdown for some time. Um, that would be my only concern, but everything from from a functional standpoint of them getting their hockey ops up to speed and everything else seems like it's still very much on point. And, you know, they're they, we probably have to check in to see what their ticket situation is, too, because they had delayed some of that stuff as well due to coronavirus.
1: One more point I want to make. Somebody pointed out to me, I can't remember who, but remember Seattle was supposed to enter the league this year and it got delayed a year? Can you imagine what a fortuitous delay that has been?
0: It, it really would have been, although I will say that as much as the NHL says the uh, entry draft could have been a way to get fans in, more interested in the game, by God, a expansion draft this summer would have been uh. the kind of, he, everybody would have watched that. You could put that on pay-per-view. Um, B. Dieter21 wants to know, I feel this award, the Stanley Cup at all costs mentality the league seems to have actually makes the cup seem more compromised than if they just canceled the season and moved on i feel the champ would have an asterisk because of the huge break what are your thoughts
1: i agree that i think when we look at this season in history it's always going to have an asterisk behind it and you're always going to have some footnote in your story well it was the pandemic season of course um, i do think that the nhl wants to award the stanley cup at all costs in part because of the integrity of the game, and they didn't want to miss a season where they get the Stanley Cup. But I think more so the NHL wants to award the Stanley Cup at all costs because of that revenue they're losing. And that, that's the big reason why they're, they're forcing this out there.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And I also think that, um, you know, the, the Asterix thing I agree with, I, I feel like it would be a lot better if you could find a way to get all the teams to play the same number of games. Um, even if you had to cut it off at, like, 73 or 74 or 75 games and not play the full schedule. I think the asterisk aspect that you could look at and, and the great sort of what-if would be if we, we go by points percentage and then it's like, well, what if that team that was a point out could have gotten in? Could it have been their year? Like, I feel like more so than in the past, and as a Devils fan, I'm very familiar with the asterisk. My team won a Stanley Cup in 1995 in a shortened season. Um, I think then you could say... Everybody was on equal footing. I think now you're looking at a situation where it's like, well, not everybody was on equal footing if we're doing it by, by points percentage. So look, it's not an, uh, ideal. And, and I think that ultimately the arguments are going to fall by the wayside because this is such an unprecedented and tragic situation. But if you wanted to be hockey petty about it, you could definitely say that there, you could look at the standings and say, all right, but points percentage was used, and, and it was unfair to the to XYZ team. So I get that. All right. Time for puck headlines. Dateline, Tampa Bay Lightning. My friend James Myrtle of The Athletic believes that the Lightning will have the worst cap situation under a flat cap. He uh, wrote an article this week projecting out um, what happens after the RFA's sign and all that other business, and he says that they could be a minus 6.2 million against the projected cap goodbye tyler johnson immediately if that's the case but uh he believes the lightning are in a a spot of trouble if the cap is flat
1: i think they were in a spot of trouble before the cap was set as not rising uh this has been a brewing issue for a couple years but i've got to say julian brisbois since he took over uh for steve eiserman has been really creative you know you saw that barclay goodrow trade for example Mm. and I, I do think he's been anticipating this for some time. I do think, yes, they're going to have to make some tough decisions like you outlined. Tyler Johnson probably will go. Um, but this isn't exactly a shock.
0: Indeed. Um, okay, moving on. Dateline, uh, <laughs> Dateline Joel Ward. <laughs> the popular forward called it a career this week. A uh, beloved player for the Washington Capitals um, and the San Jose Sharks, National Predators as well uh always a guy that was never shying away from uncomfortable conversations both of his parents grew up uh, are from Barbados uh he has been a long advocate of hockey is for everyone and of course dealt with some absolutely deplorable racial stuff uh, after scoring a goal, overtime game winning goal for the Capitals against the Boston Bruins and i really felt that he um i really i really felt honored that he took time from what should have Maybe in other situations, been a remembrance of his career to address some important issues like the Con- the Andre uh, Miller situation that happened during that live chat for the Rangers last month, and um, and Ward's Ward's an important voice to that stuff, and I hope that he continues to be.
1: Yeah, honestly, like the last thing, image I have of Joel Ward was earlier this season when he was honored by the Capitals and wore a black girl hockey club sweatshirt out from the ice, which I just <laughs> thought was sick. Uh, I cannot wait to see what he does in his next chapter. He's alluded to wanting to stay involved in the game. I think he's in talks with the San Jose Sharks about some kind of formal role, like director of player development or something like that, I think would be such a great use of his hockey mind, his human mind. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him still involved in the game.
0: Indeed. Indeed. All right. Dateline Columbus. Are the contracts for Yunus Corpusalo and Elvis Merzlikens the first examples of the paused season deals? We talked about this earlier with Kurt Oberhard. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think we're going to see dramatic changes to contracts because of the, uh, the escrow situation?
1: I don't know if the Columbus dual goalie situation is the perfect illustration of this. Like if you talk to Yarmulke um like this has kind of been the goal ever since they realized Brodsky was going to leave. They were going to try to fill the role internally. They had these guys. And of course, you want to lock guys up cheap when you can. And that's kind of what they did. Um, but I do think going forward, um, we are going to see shorter deals just because of the economic climate.
0: Indeed. Uh, and then finally—oh, wait, two more. Dateline New York football Giants. <laughs> this is a kind of a weird one. Um, the New York Post talked to Steve Lemieux, who's a rookie offensive lineman for the Giants. And according to the Post, in college at Oregon, Lemieux was at left guard, lined up next to left tackle Tyrell Crosby. So you, you'd look at the Oregon offensive line and see Lemieux and Crosby in close proximity— and Steve Lemieux said, people had a fit with that. I've heard I'm not wearing 66, which is a crime because I was 68 in college. AKA, he didn't take 66 because his last name is Lemieux. If your last name was Lemieux, wouldn't you take 66? I'm like, well, how do you not if you're playing another sport?
1: You gotta fam- you gotta honor the family name. No.
0: <laughs> no. I, he probably just doesn't want the grief from Pittsburgh fans being like, yin's now, you can't wear that number or some such. Uh, finally, Dateline NHL pause rewatch. Uh, Emily and I watched King's Ransom, the 30 for 30 on the Wayne Gretzky trade. And I believe you've been very kind in not saying that you were, you you were not the biggest fan of the pacing of this one.
1: I didn't love it. (laughs) Here's the thing. Like, Gretzky going to L.A. is so significant in the hockey landscape, in pop culture, in American history of hockey. And we get that flash forward in a 10-minute montage. And instead, it's just kind of this methodical look at Peter Pocklington having to make a tough financial decision and kind of being um, a villain in Edmonton. And I don't know. It just wasn't the documentary for me.
0: It's it's a lot to get into a 30 for 30 um, because you like you said, the Pocklington stuff that they focus on is really interesting. Uh, you know, anytime an owner is burned in effigy by his own fans, very interesting. Uh, the LA stuff where Gretzky basically transforms hockey in California and now he's hobnobbing with, you know, Tony Danza and Sly Stallone and John Candy. Candy. Yeah, is, is, is fascinating. But then there's like that whole other aspect of this, which is that the Oilers won another cup without Gretzky, without right the, the supporting cast one. So it, it kind of undercuts the whole thing a little bit when you don't, when, when that's just sort of an end note of, uh, you know, Gretzky leaving and my God, what's going to happen to the Oilers? Well, they won another cup is what they, what they did. And, um, it's a really, it's, I think it's good for the conversations with Gretzky and, and to look back at the, internal dynamics of the relationship between Gretzky and Sather and Poppington. But I've, I've recommended this book before in different places and I'll do it again here. Uh, Gretzky's Tears by Stephen Brunt. If you're interested in the story, um, it does a really, it does the most thorough job I've ever read of, of fleshing out Gretzky's years in Los Angeles, which is something that I've always been interested in, uh, but never really saw, saw it, um, Encapsulated because there was so much attention given to Gretzky's divorce from the Oilers that what happened afterwards was sort of glossed over. So, um, that's good stuff. And then, you know, to the, the most fascinating guy in the entire story is Bruce McNall, but they didn't really get into that either because McNall was a fraud. He went to jail. He was defrauding a bunch of banks during all this Gretzky stuff. And, uh, that's also an end note. It's like, it's like literally like, if, if you watch The Empire Strikes Back and then they put some text on the screen at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, by the way, Darth Vader was Luke's father. Like It's
1: just like yeah.
0: the most fascinating stuff happened in the end note. But it's still a good 30 for 30. You should check it out.
1: That said, yes, it is a great 30 for 30. But it totally calls for a Michael Jordan-style documentary on Gretzky's first season in L.A. I
0: agree, except for the fact that I feel... I feel like maybe Michael Jordan is a bit more of a dynamic personality than Wayne Gretzky.
1: I don't have to say it has to be <laughs> 10 parts and a big primetime special that was expedited because of a global pandemic. I'm just saying, give me an hour of good television.
0: That said, if you really wanted to, you know, get into the life of, of, of Mark Messier, that could be Rodman. I mean, they both dated Madonna. So, I mean, right there. You Wait, Messier dated you. Madonna? Oh, yeah. Well, he I, wouldn't, I mean, Emily dated with air quotes, you know.
1: Was, Wait, was, Mark was... Messier and Idris Elba are Eskimo brothers?
0: <laughs> wow. That is the show for this week. Uh, our thanks to Kurt Oberhart for joining us. Our thanks to CJ for joining us. Our thanks to the shocked look on Emily's face as the architect of the 1994 Stanley Cup comes into focus for being the ladies' man that he was.
1: Yeah, my thanks to Greg for sending me down a rabbit hole for the next hour
0: yeah right there first hit messier madonna line line may become love something rather from the chicago tribune wow. um 10 surprising facts about mark messier
1: wow well, here goes yeah. my day there you go <laughs> thanks for we- listening everyone we appreciate you
0: yeah there it is <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. Uh, it says, Mark, Ma- according to uh, Canada.com, Mark Messier managed to hook up with both Madonna and supermodel Tyra Banks.
1: Wait, I'm so sorry, now- did you say Canada.com?
0: Yeah, Canada.com. <laughs> so that means you're, you're now, now you're parachuting down the rabbit hole to find out this stuff about Messier.
1: Wait, does Canada.com just take stock of all different Canadian celebrities and their exploits? Yeah, absolutely. Oh wow. I hope it's a government funded <laughs> website. <laughs> be All right. Canada.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, check out our stuff on ESPN.com. Daily coverage of the league and the Monday morning news wrap up for COVID 19 stuff is essential reading. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.
1: Bye. 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 <laughs> This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan.
3: Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.